Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. This is Marianne Sullivan, and my guests this week are, once again, Laura Fox of the Humane Society of the United States, along with Daniel Weiner of Sherman and Sterling. We will be speaking about litigation brought by HSUS, along with Farmer Sanctuary and Mercy for Animals, entitled The Humane Society of the United States versus United States Department of Agriculture, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, Veterinary Services, in which these animal advocacy groups are taking issue with the USDA's plans for what to do to the poor benighted chickens who, trapped in factory farms, come down with bird flu, endangering humans as well as birds with a potential pandemic. After the USDA virtually ignored the suggestion that the birds should be kept in less crowded and less brutal surroundings as a way to avoid such an outbreak, the agency instead decided the birds' ventilation should be shut off once they get sick so they can slowly die a horrible death. Oh, and the farmers will be indemnified by taxpayers, that would be you, for their losses. The horrors visited upon animals seem to be getting worse, but at least a recent standing decision in the U.S. District Court in California will let this case proceed and the courts will have an opportunity to decide whether they have finally just gone too far. What do you think? Let's let's hope so. Before we get to that interview, I'd like to take a moment to ask for your support for Our Hen House, which is the not-for-profit entity that produces this podcast, along with the Our Hen House podcast. And if you can help out, please go to ourhenhouse.org slash donate. And there you can join our flock for $10 a month, or you can make a one-time donation in any amount. If you can't afford it right now, we understand. Our supporters always know that they are helping to provide animal-friendly media, not just to themselves, but to others who can't afford right now to contribute. And we are so, so grateful for that. And of course, if you haven't yet done so, please check out the Our Hen House podcast, which I co-host along with Jasmine Singer. A couple of recent episodes that might be of interest include episode 589 with Australian author Laura Jean McKay speaking about her recent dystopian novel about a pandemic. Crazy, right? It's called The Animals in That Country. Also, take a look at or listen to Episode 588 with comedian Mike Kaplan. Okay, let's get to this interview. Laura Fox joined the Humane Society of the United States Animal Protection Law Department in 2015 as an attorney focusing on issues related to puppy mills and now is staff attorney for farm animal protection, working on efforts to reduce extreme confinement practices and challenging their environmental impacts. She is also an adjunct professor of animal law at George Mason's Scalia Law School. Daniel Weiner is an associate in the litigation practice of Sherman and Sterling. They'll be joining me right after this. I want to tell you about an amazing service for anybody who's practicing animal law or interested in animal law. The Brooks Animal Law Digest is a premier free online publication dedicated to offering in-depth and up-to-date coverage on today's most important animal law and policy issues. Published weekly as a collaborative effort with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program, the Digest is a Brooks Institute service to the animal protection community. It can be like having a full-time lawyer on your staff researching and reporting to you on U.S. current legal developments related to animal protection issues. This Digest is a resource for anyone interested in learning more about the field of animal law, either as a high-level overview of weekly developments for those who are focused on specific work but nevertheless want to stay aware of other actions, or as a jumping-off point for digging into a specific current issue in the field. Features include allowing you to compile updates by category, 
Search by key terms, and each issue contains links to background materials that will orient the reader around that specific issue. There are weekly highlights as well as quarterly summaries. You can subscribe to the Brooks Animal Law Digest at thebrooksinstitute.org. Welcome to the Animal Law Podcast. Welcome back, Laura, and welcome, Dan. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited about this. This case, uh, you know, there's some stuff uh, reviewing the papers that I understand and some stuff that's new to me that uh, I really want to learn about. So uh, be kind and and explain everything uh, because I'm not familiar with particularly the standing argument here. But um, let's just start out by describing what's just the basic factual background um, and maybe a little bit of the legal background before we get to the lawsuit itself. What is HPAI? Yeah, I'll uh, jump in there. So uh, HPAI is high pathogenic avian influenza, right? So avian influenza, you might have uh, heard called bird flu, um, or you might hear specific strands like, you know, H5N5 or H5N7. I I can never remember any of those numbers anymore. They're they're, they're, like, it's impossible. I don't know which are the good ones and which are the bad. Well, now there's no good ones, but which are the (laughs) terrible ones. But uh. yeah, so while uh, not to be alarmist, but uh, until recently, I think it was only uh, H, uh, N5 and N7 that, um, you know, became HPAI, so high pathogenic. Um, But uh, recently in Russia, H5N8 um, has been found to jump to at least one person, maybe up to eight. Um, And so that's terrifying because um, avian influenza, when it uh, is found in in people, it it has historically had a 60% mortality rate, um, which is well above what COVID is, right? So if you think of the havoc that uh, the coronavirus has had um, bird flu uh, is an existential threat that could have um, just as, as bad or worse. So it's really important um, to monitor and control bird flu outbreaks when they occur. Um, and so, so that answers your question. And then I would lead right into um, how the government uh, is planning um, to control these outbreaks. Well, before you do that, could you just, I know that one, what you're talking about is, is terrifying, but there was a specific outbreak that maybe wasn't as terrifying as the ones to come, but still kind of provoked the activity that we're talking about here. Can you just tell us a little bit about that 20, I think it was 2014 outbreak? Uh, sure. I can go ahead and, and, uh, talk about that a little bit. So there was a major outbreak, um, of, HPAI in 2014 and 2015, um, and uh, you know, avian influenza was was discovered and then uh, essentially spread to millions of birds. Um, and the government at that point, uh, USDA, uh, APHIS, who is the defendant in this suit, the uh, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service was tasked with putting together a plan um, to essentially uh, control outbreaks in the future. Um, And that plan involves, uh, well, it involves both containing and controlling the outbreak, but also um, methods of disposing of, uh, in in this case, 
killing uh, hundreds of thousands to millions of birds that end up uh, contracting the virus and um, and then you know disposing of the bodies. The USDA or APHIS, the subsection of the USDA, as you pointed out, they're authorized to do this under the Animal Health Protection Act. Is that is that the law that that governs telling the USDA you're in charge of this? That's correct. The, the implementation of um, of their ability to deal with these sorts of large scale outbreaks uh, is is governed by the AHPA. So they set forth this plan. And what it what does the response to an outbreak set forth in the plan look like? What what are they suggesting should be done? In response right to the 2014-2015 outbreak which led to the I hate this term but depopulation or killing of uh, over 50 million uh, birds and at the cost of um you know upwards of 3 billion dollars um and uh, what happens is uh, the government, uh, US, the United States Department of Agriculture, after that outbreak decided, well, we need to set up a plan, right? Um, and we could either do nothing and let the states and individual producers, um, you know, take care of it, or we could provide some assistance and guidance. Um, and that's what they chose to do. And so what they've done is they've created this uh, sort of guidebook, right, for biosecurity measures and also what to do when an a, a, a infected bird is detected. Um, and this relates to how to, quote unquote, depopulate um, that um, herd or flock and the surrounding herds or flocks. Um, and then how to dispose of those then dead animals. Um, and then uh, the real problematic um, aspect or one of the problematic aspects we see is then um, their indemnification of these producers um, after they've implemented um, the disposal and depopulation um, aspects of the plan. So the depopulation is pretty brutal stuff, as we've all, I mean, I think probably most people are familiar with it because there was so much, quote unquote, depopulation during this pandemic. Um, but uh, so I'm not sure we have to go into excruciating detail on that. But but so so let's talk a little bit about the indemnification, because as you point out, that really becomes very important. Is that the only incentive? Uh, do USDA have any ability to mandate that producers follow these these procedures or is that their incentive to get them to do it if you follow these procedures we'll we'll pay you for for all of your dead animals right it would just be an incentive and so right our argument is that um if uh the government decides they are not going to indemnify um uh, unless through a contract right um application um it, producers uh, agree to certain parameters um then, um, right, those producers would likely um, follow, right, the sort of contractual terms uh, in order to receive an indemnification. So it's it's the cost of um, uh, deploying the depopulation and disposal me measures, the cost of, um, right, the fair market value of the animals lost, and also um, eggs, 
Exactly. And I actually said I wasn't going to go into it, but but this basically, uh, I will go into it. this. Basically, just turn involves turning off the ventilation, right? I mean, what else do they? What else, what other methods do they have to follow in order to get paid? So, well, there's a whole gamut of approved methods. Um, so, if you're a smaller, uh, you know, uh, producer, you might be able to get away with doing. Um, uh, using captive bolt guns or decapitation or blunt force trauma, which requires individual um, application, right? And then you can imagine that on the larger flocks or herds, because we're also talking about pigs um, who can also uh, uh, be infected with um, bird flu, um, that uh, they use uh, these sort of cheap and massive ways to destroy a number of animals uh, very quickly. So this includes ventilating, ventilation shutdown, VSD, which, like you said, Marianne, is, is just turning off the fans that uh, monitor the temperatures or regulate the temperatures within the like large warehouse-like facilities where these animals are kept and filter out debris Exactly. It's suffocating them alive. And then the other form that's commonly used is a water-based foam. So envision firefighting foam um, being um, distributed, you know, to cover um, the animals so that they also uh, suffocate while they're still alive. So the incentives here aren't so much to to get them to do it in a in a good way. It's just to get them to do it. To so to so to stop the spread. Is that right? In part, but there are a number of of ways that you know have been identified as not only more humane um, in the case of an outbreak, but also less dangerous in uh, potentially spreading disease further. Uh, for an, for example, in ventilation shutdown, um, there's all kinds of gases that build up in these huge factory farms. Um, those you know particles can be transmitted into the air. And if those farms are nearby, uh, even you know other poultry farms or um, wild, uh, you know wild birds, uh, they can be exposed to to these harmful particles in the air, which you know destroys air quality for humans around uh, around these uh, factory farms as well, but can lead to further transmission of disease. And so the indemnification procedures that we're talking about. Um, you know, an incentive to keep these uh, keep these animals not caged and not in these tightly confined spaces would go an extremely long way in you know not only being more humane but in in preventing the spread of disease. Right. Um, yeah, and we'll get to that because that's your your suggestion for for not even having to reach these these extreme methods but they didn't require anything other than the most extreme methods in in their uh their indemnification requirements is is that right they they just pretty much allow people to kill them in in some of the worst ways that's right they just have to kill them uh, yeah like so there's like guidelines right for approved methods and they usually um, base those off of um, AVMA so American Veteran Medical okay. Association um, and so there's a petition right now with the AVMA to um, have them sort of decommission ventilation shutdown as a, a 
appropriate method, even in emergency situations, but especially, Marianne, as you mentioned, right, there's people know about depopulation because during COVID, um, a lot of animals have been killed because they're not able to get to slaughter. Um, and so ventilation shutdown, it has been used in even non-emergent situations. But if AVMA decides that it's completely unacceptable, um, then that portion, right, of the guidelines wouldn't carry over to USDA's recommendations. Um, And, right, so then hopefully that would phase out that type of depopulation method. It's also important to recognize that not only is the indemnification contingent on, uh, you know, depopulation, but also how you dispose of these carcasses afterwards. You know, the burial processes, often the infected, uh, uh, the the you know bodies of infected animals are left in unlined burial pits and uh, you know left outside of just open uh, in open air so that any birds that are passing by can also be um, infected just by coming into contact with these um, infected animals that are not disposed of correctly um, and the the government's done little um, if anything to prevent or essentially they indemnify uh farmers even when they've they've uh even when they've disposed of carcasses in really unsafe ways that can again further um further lead to to uh the spread of these you know these diseases all right so let's talk a little bit about the law uh that is behind your suit cause since we've sort of got the the hideous facts laid out. I, I know this is a National Environmental Policy Act claim or NEPA. Uh so can you Dan why don't you why don't you take this one? Can you just tell us a little bit about NEPA? Why is it a what what kind of statute is it? It's a little bit unique. Um and and what is its purpose? Sure. Uh it's a procedural statute. Um in the, and its purpose is essentially saying that when the federal government engages in any uh, large-scale operation, when any federal agency engages in any large-scale project, um, the government's required to take a hard look, is, is the legal term actually, um, and, and conduct an analysis to determine whether that project or whether that action, agency action, will have a um an impact on the environment a significant impact is is the language in the statute and there's um it involves i guess a sort of an extended process of or should involve an extended process of uh assessing essentially what that action will uh, what impact that action will have on um the the environment uh and what happens is if the government has to, if the government assesses the impact and says, um, you know, we, we don't believe that there will be any significant impact, they still have to put together what's called an environmental assessment that says, you know, here's the action, here's what we plan to do, um, and, you know, here's what impact we believe it will have. And we are making a determination that the impact will, for example, will have a, an, an, a significant environmental impact or will not have a significant environmental impact. If they make that second determination, they also have to 
issue what's called a finding of no significant impact, which is an official agency finding that the that the the action will not have a significant impact on the environment. Well, in this case, what has ha- what has happened is um, they put out this plan shortly after a uh, you know shortly after the pan what essentially was a pandemic um, of that spread of uh, HPAI in 2015, and um, they had to put out an environmental assessment and. That assessment was essentially said, no, we don't believe that the the what we've done here in terms of uh, the plan that we have for controlling and disposing of uh, of uh, poultry that have been infected, we don't believe that that will have a significant impact on the environment. Let me ask a few questions because sure. I do want to take a little bit of a step back. Because I know two of the important factors, uh, because I, I looked at the papers, but I don't know a lot about them, in deciding, in making this really important decision about whether they're, they're and I think most people probably heard of an EIS, an environmental impact statement. So they're deciding in in the assessment that they don't need one, no significant impact. But I, I, I've heard the terms context and intensity, and they seem to be important in making that decision. I'm just, uh, Laura, maybe you could like just go a little bit into what they mean by context and a, and a few of the factors that they would use to determine intensity um, in this kind of situation. Right. So um, with regard to Right, context and, and intensity. So, because um, right, bird flu could have such a, a drastic impact um, as we've seen with um, uh, COVID, uh, the um, uh, the effects of um, not sort of doing this uh, plan um, to spec um, are are so. Uh, uh, in, in, intense and, and great um, that that really should factor in to whether or not an EAS is, is necessary. Um, and as far as the context, right? So we think of all of the factors that that come into play, um, and NEPA requires that not only you evaluate the current plan, but you evaluate um, various uh, alternatives. Um, that are practicable. Um, and so that's what, you know, the Humane Society raised as uh, an alternative that the agency needed to evaluate. Um, and through the NEPA process, they failed to contextualize all of these alternatives um, and evaluate them. Does it also matter? I, I've heard some that other laws enter into this too. Does that have to do with how big an impact they think or how intense they think that is, whether whether this would also affect the uh, the applicability or enforcement of other laws? Like, you know, I'm thinking uh, Clean Water Act, obviously, is involved in poultry uh, Any things like that. Absolutely. So, you know, during the NEPA process, you evaluate whether or not um, the action is going to um, cause any violation of federal Laws and so this includes um, federal environmental laws like the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, um, the Endangered Species Act, the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, um, and our lawsuit alleges um, that there are uh, a heightened probabilities that these 
regulations will be violated um, because of um, the ways in which depopulation and disposal are happening, right? So you can imagine, right, Dan mentioned the buildup of ammonia and other debris during uh, ventilation shutdown and then right, the open air burning for disposal of carcasses um, when it's just out in the open and migratory birds could come and contract um, diseases from that, right? So, and that would be in violation of the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Some of these animals are endangered species. And so that comes into play, right? And so um, that needed to be fully analyzed, the potential impacts and violations of those statutes. Um, and another um, part um, of the analysis is to look at the environmental justice impacts. And this is um, directed by an executive order that um, is just standing and ongoing. Um, and basically the um, government needs to identify and address disproportionately high and adverse human health or environmental effects of its programs on minority populations and low-income populations. Um, and here, the government just completely uh, ignored <laughs> their obligation um, to, to do that. Well, actually, uh, they acknowledged their obligation um, and said it was impossible to measure these impacts and then concluded um, that there are no disproportionate impacts um, so that's another aspect um, of our challenge. Now, my understanding is that they put this out and then you get to comment and HSUS. Uh, I'm not sure whether all three plaintiffs or whether it was just HSUS submitted their comments saying many of the criticisms that you've already offered uh, and and uh, maybe maybe some additional ones and um, and proposed an alternative. So can you tell us a little, Dan, why don't you uh, take this one and tell us a little bit about what HSUS um, suggested as as a better alternative plans and, and you know, and, and what they pointed out were some of the problems with the initial uh well, I'm saying the initial um, assessment, but um, I'm not sure it ever changed much. But but when they put it out and you got to comment, what did you say? Well, so so the the uh, comment process, you know, there's a standard notice and comment procedure when um, any agency action takes place, and so they open it uh, up, you know, before any final agency action, they they're opening it open up um, public comment for that, and so. Uh, in response to this plan, which you know woefully uh, did not did not perform the the required hard look uh, at reasonable alternative plans that would in fact um, lead to you know a, a safer uh, process in the case of uh, an HPAI outbreak. Um, HSUS submitted a comment saying, you know, you you needed to do a more thorough and legally adequate analysis of of uh, how you would handle uh, responding to HPAI and their response um, or their the environmental assessment that um, APHIS conducted that USDA put out really said we are either going to do nothing or we're going to assist um, you know local and state. Uh, state uh local and state action to to do this and what ended up happening um is the the, the indemnification procedures we were talking about before the plan 
essentially allowed indemnification, as we were saying, of all these dangerous practices. Um, and one of the main things that HSUS commented on was one really essential, um, essential and easy way that we could, uh, you know, limit the harms um, in in the case of an HPAI outbreak would be to uh, to basically limit stocking density in these factory farms, and I'm sure. Many of your listeners are very familiar with um, the conditions that um, that that poultry farms um, have, and and the conditions under which these birds are stocked, which are, uh, you know, huge huge factories where um, you know you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of chickens in cages, unable to spread their wings um, in environments that really are really incubate disease. And what HSUS's comment was, was, well, if you limit indemnification or if you condition it on stocking and housing birds in safer conditions, um, then you're going to significantly uh, mitigate the environmental, environmental impact of, a, uh, of a, an outbreak in the future. And then what happened was uh, the government apparently said they considered it, I'm, I'm using air quotes, but um, they really said, you know, we've, that's basically all they said. We've considered it and decided that we're not going to do that. And um, <laughs> I don't think uh, that's, that's really taking the hard look that uh, NEPA would require in terms of uh, that using, you know, those indemnification procedures as a significant incentive is certainly uh, one of the alternative uh, a reasonable alternative plan that could have been uh, at least analyzed, and the government failed to do that. Yeah, Dan, if I could just amplify some of the things that you um, mentioned about HSUS's comments. So I think it's real critical to understand that uh, the science is there that um, uh so new diseases that have emerged in humans have, re- have you know, a- animal origins, right? And zoonotic diseases usually relate to the human consumption of animal source food, um, especially what, when it comes to factory farmed food. Um, and so animals um, in concentrated, networked, or caged conditions um, are really creating a breeding ground for diseases. Um, And this could be in caged facilities, but also in high stocking density facilities, right? So um, this is the area that an animal has per square uh, inch. Um, And both of these situations, there's no room for social distancing of these animals, right? And so you can imagine um, that thousands of animals in such tight conditions allows for um, uh, the transfer of a virus um, to one host to another pretty rapidly. And with each transfer, um, there's a possibility that the virus will mutate into something even more deadly or infectious. And so in, in, you know, indemnifying producers um, to restock um, or re-cage birds at such high densities 
um, is just allowing, you know, um, or, or basically paying somebody to like rebuild a house that's fallen into a cliff in the same place, right? Um, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Um, and to restock um, and fill um, these warehouses um, to such high capacity, um, you know, it's just like playing virus roulette and it's only a matter of time. Um, that will see a mutation um, that will will be deadly and create a huge problem. Yeah, and I really want to to bring attention to the fact to everybody who's listening how huge the implications of this case are. Uh, I, you know, the one piece I don't know is how desperately the poultry and egg industries and 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 perhaps others as well. Uh, rely on indemnification or whether they can absorb the cost of killing these animals. But aside from that, what you're basically saying is that the government is paying people to create pathogenic diseases that could reach humans, but in any case, are going to reach all of these chickens. And in order to, uh, to, to justify that, they are ignoring um, or the fact that Stocking density is a factor, but if we end stocking density, we kind of end animal ag- the way animal agriculture is done in this country. Like that's the whole name of the game is stocking density. That's that's why they, how they keep it cheap. Uh, so the implication, I mean, it's I find it both heartening and not surprising that the USDA just ignored this because I don't know what the hell they would say. Like, I really don't. (laughs) They just have to basically say, well, no, we can't do that. It's just too big. It's just too big. Yeah, it is causing, you know, this fear of a a horrible disease and uh, that could reach people. And uh, in any case, it's going to kill all these animals. And yeah, it it is. But but it's too big as as every problem with factory farming um, ends up being it's too big. Uh, it's too big to kill, even though it might kill us all. All right, that was my editorial uh, <laughs> commentary. But I do want to emphasize what a big deal this case is, uh, because they're we're getting closer to really placing them between that rock and, and that hard place. Um, all right, so finally, we're getting to the lawsuit. And um, tell us who the plaintiffs are. Yeah, so uh, the Humane Society of the United States, um, and then our co-plaintiffs are Mercy for Animals and the Farm Sanctuary. And most of our listeners are probably familiar with all of those organizations, and we'll get get into them soon because we have this really interesting standing argument here, which I haven't gotten to yet. Um, but first, let's let's talk about uh, the the actual causes of action because the causes of action are under NEPA, but also the the um, Administrative Procedure Act, as as so often is the case. Can you can you just briefly explain why you use both statutes? Dan, do you want to take that? Sure. So NEPA, in and of itself, does not create a a federal cause of action. Um, so essentially, you have to bring a NEPA claim under the APA, um, and the claim is that in not in not preparing what we say they were required to do and not preparing an environmental impact statement, which we say was a necessity here because of the, you know, incredible impact on the environment that any of these outbreaks could have. Um, They have basically done an arbitrary and capricious uh, job as an agency, and that's a violation of uh, 
of the Administrative Procedure Act. So you have to bring the claim um, under the APA uh, in order to, to litigate it. Um, and, and additionally, as Laura mentioned earlier, um, there's also the executive order, um, which is sort of a, a different um, a different category as well. But if in the process of um, conducting an analysis, an environmental analysis under NEPA, an agency has chosen to address um, the impact on minority communities, then you can also there's another cause of action you can bring under that order. Um, saying that they've done an inadequate job of uh, of doing that analysis as well. Yeah, that in and of itself is such an interesting issue, but there's too many interesting issues in this case. So uh, I, I want to go through the three specific claims that you assert. And I think the first involved basically what we've already talked about, the failure to evaluate a reasonable range of alternatives. Um Unless you have something to add to that, I'd like to get to the to the second, which was how the approval of the um, the what does Fonzie stand for? <laughs> Finding of no of no significant impact. <laughs> right. Okay. Violated both NEPA and the APA, and and you had a few uh, a, a few claims here. Can you can you just go through them? Sure. Well, uh, essentially, in in putting out a, a finding of no significant impact of FONSI, the agency has said that, you know, they have put in the, the analysis necessary to come to a conclusion that there will be no significant environmental impact. And in order to do that, there are a few steps that um, you have to take. And I, I might have gone through this a little bit beforehand, but, um, you know, they, they have to essentially put together an analysis called environmental assessment um, that that addresses the plan, lays out in detail the alternatives that they have looked at and says, you know, we don't believe that um, they're, you know, after doing a thorough analysis that we're required to do anything further other than say, we have found that there is no significant impact. And um, in putting out uh, a an environmental assessment that essentially says, well, we either said we would do nothing and we decided against that alternative, or um, we were going to help, uh, you know, local and state actors by, you know, the types of things we were talking about, indemnification, but also really uh, APHIS is involved in every step of the process in terms of, um, you know, providing support to local and state actors uh, in the case of an outbreak, um, they said, well, that's the other alternative, but um, in allowing and providing support for all these local actors to you know, do the exact types of dangerous processes that we've been discussing, <laughs> they said that there would be no significant impact um, involved there. And so that, that's what you know, the issuing of the finding of no significant impact indicated. And so what our challenge is, is that in putting this out, you know, they did not take the legally required hard look um, at all the reasonable alternatives, um, specifically some that we were discussing earlier that HSUS uh, included in its comment um, to, you know, uh, in response to the plan. So in, in, in putting out that finding, they did not take the uh, hard look and did a legally inadequate 
uh, analysis of the environmental impacts of the response to HPAI. And um, I think the the third uh, claim that you made was the failure, the basically the failure to conduct the um, the EIS and uh, and. And I think we've gone through most of the the issues that were relevant to that. Uh, the the idea that that other statutes were violated. Uh, That's correct. Had, had the environmental assessment been adequate, in our you know, and what we claim uh, is that there's there's no chance that, that the government would not have had to prepare uh, a an envi- an EIS. I mean, we've already discussed about the the massive you know implications to public health, um, which in our, you know, in our, our opinion are alone sufficient to, to require an EIS. But interestingly enough, um, USDA APHIS put out a carcass management EIS shortly after um, the, their environmental assessments uh, related to the HPAI plan. And that's essentially one piece of responding to an HPAI outbreak is managing disposal of um, the infected uh, animal carcasses. And we, as part of our claims, also asserted that, you know, it doesn't make any sense for them to say that in an entirely different analysis, this one piece of what's going on uh, requires the, the you know, the, this legally thorough uh, environmental impact statement, whereas uh, here, they said, oh, just a, an, e, an EA was adequate and we can just find there's no significant impact. It's internally contradictory. So they just kind of divided up the whole old claim and, and addressed the ones that they thought the industry could manage to address? That could have been the reasoning behind it. Honestly, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so if, they're, if, if the government's going to say that there is significant impact um, for this one piece, but not for uh, you know the entire process or or the entire plan. Uh, it, it it doesn't make sense. And also um, in NEPA, in and of itself, the the regulation requires that um, you cannot segment the analysis in that way. So if there is one piece of the of the plan that requires an environment an environmental impact statement, then the whole plan requires uh, that that analysis. I just think this totally supports my theory that, like, they just can't do this. <laughs> They'll put <laughs> animal agriculture out of business if they do this. So they're trying to, like, do part of it. And as as you're pointing out, the law doesn't exactly let you do part of it. Anyway, the case is very early days. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's it's more fun to do an interview later in the case when things have been more developed. But I really wanted to get to the standing argument here. And anyway, this is such an interesting case and so timely that it's worth discussing now. So just tell tell us the what's going to happen at the end of this case. What re, what relief um, are you seeking? And then we'll get to the standing uh, issue. Yeah, so um, we're seeking basically um, uh, a finding um, that um, the the Fonzie was arbitrary and capricious, um, and you know um, that basically will mandate um, the agency to reassess the environmental impacts. Um, and then hopefully, right, an environmental impact statement um, will be um, 
conducted um, and they will fully consider the alternatives um, that are presented to the agency um, and hopefully we'll see a different outcome. So um, that's the redressability that we're seeking in this case. Did you want to add something, Ned? Sure. I was going to say that just importantly, you know, the the remedy in, in a NEPA violation, it isn't it isn't necessary that, you know, if if the government conducted a new uh, analysis and a new EIS that it necessarily would even find. I mean, our hope is that if they did that, they would see that there would be significant environmental impacts and completely reassess the way that they handle these situations, especially in light of everything that's gone on in the last year and what we, we've seen the pandemic potential of these sort of, um, you know, zoonotic diseases is. But uh, in an EPA case, really, the issue is if they have not conducted that legally required thorough analysis, um, they have to do that regardless of whether they would end up changing the plan in the long term. Um, so the issue is that they haven't even done the analysis required to get to a point where um, the plan is uh, what well, is is legally adequate. So it, if if we did, you know, ideally win this case and um, the the uh, the court would reverse, uh, vacate, and set aside the environmental assessments and the finding of no significant impact and require the agency to conduct a more thorough analysis, um, ideally that would lead to a, uh, a, a more thorough and uh, legally required analysis that would cause them to change the, the, you know, the way they look at these issues and cause them to change the plan. Um, but in the first instance, it's really getting um, the, the, the inadequate analysis set aside and vacated and forcing them to conduct a more thorough environmental impact analysis. Yeah. And, and this is exactly what NEPA is all about. I mean, why, when it was first passed, uh, people said, well, that's useless. It's not requiring the government to do anything other than to look at something. But it turns out that requiring the government to look at things and announce their findings actually has a big impact or can have a big impact. And I assume that's what you're hoping for here and all of the all of the fact that that's all you're seeking it has a lot to do with the standing argument um so so let's get to this uh this is a motion to dismiss um that the defendants brought and and can we just start off can you just remind listeners about the three prongs of article 3 standing and, and then we'll get into this these special considerations for a procedural injury yeah, so Article 3 standing arises out of Article 3 of the U.S. Constitution, and um, it, it's been interpreted um, to mean that courts can only hear cases and controversies, and, uh, and then it's further been interpreted that cases and controversies requires um, these sort of three findings. So First is that you have an injury in fact, so something that's uh, concrete and um, uh, identifiable, um, and that um, it's caused by, um, you know, the, the entity that you're uh, suing, and that the courts can um, redress the, the, the issue. So there's something that the courts could do to somehow alleviate or mitigate um, the injury that the defendant is causing. And, and just one more aside before we reach the main argument, 
Um, the court re- also responded to this very specific argument that the defendants made, which I found really weird that that the 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 plaintiffs didn't specifically list the names of the people who are members of the organizations upon which upon whom they were relying for their standing argument. And can you talk a little bit about um, about that argument and about uh, this type of standing um, and and what the court said about it? Was this weird? I, I don't have enough experience <sighs> to know, but do you normally have to announce everybody's name right at, at, in your complaint? No. Um, and it, 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 unfortunately, it's not weird in that this is an argument that the government has been pushing um, uh, for for um, quite some time now and will likely continue it, even though it's been um, rejected time and time again. Um, but okay, so just to take a step back. Um, so the Humane Society, Emergency for Animals and Farm Sanctuary were seeking associational standing to bring this case, right? And associational standing means that you as an organization have members that have standing to sue in their own right, but, you know, they associate with you as an organization so that they don't have to bring these lawsuits, right? The organization can bring these lawsuits um, on behalf of them. Uh, and so we, in, you know, uh, evaluating whether or not we could bring this case, identified and interviewed members whom we thought had been injured by um, the the procedural just uh, deficiencies um, and um, you know impacts of that, um, uh, and could bring a lawsuit on their own, um, you know, if they had the means to. Um, and so we've then um, explained in the complaint um, what these members' interests are in the. Um, you know, procedural uh, application of um, of this rulemaking, how their concrete interests are impacted, um, and um, like where they're located and how they're impacted in in very um, detailed ways. Um, what we didn't do is say um, that this particular person named Bob Smith. Um, had been impacted. And the government said that this is deficient. As a threshold matter for associational standing, you have to identify by name the member or a at least one member in which you're relying on um, for that standing. And this, they say, arises out of a Supreme Court case, um, Summers versus Earth Island Institute. Um, and it's just wholly misconstrued. Um, and it's very uh, dangerous because, um, you know, if organizations are forced to name their standing declarants or, or members that they're relying on to demonstrate that the organization has associational standing, um then it can limit the opportunity to, you know, um, get members um, to participate um, in in these filings, right? Not everybody is very litigious, especially, right, if you just sign up for um, an animal organization. Um, uh, You don't necessarily sign up because you you know you're going to, you know, litigate um, every case. 
Um, and so um, if your name is then now on the initial filing, um, it's very, it's more public um, than um, if, if it's just submitted in a court through a declaration or affidavit um, later down the line when we're doing, you know, less press about the filing. Um, and so your name is, is unlikely to be circulated. I mean, the court might want to know in order to make its ultimate standing decision that these are real allegations, but you don't have to like put everybody's name out there right in front. That's, that's basically. Yeah. So, I mean, all you like, yeah. So it, it was, it's, all you need to do is articulate the theory of standing that you're relying on. So what the injury are, is causation and, you know, redressability for your members um, and provide some level of detail so that the defendant, in this case, the federal government, can assess whether or not you do have standing, right? Um, and the government's arguing that they can't do that. They can't assess whether or not our members have standing unless they know their name. Because you might be lying that these people even exist and want to bring Who this knows? lawsuit, even though sooner or later they'll find out that you were lying. Yeah, it, it doesn't make much sense. And and the judge agreed. The judge yes. agreed that it didn't make yes. much sense. It's a, a very literal and you know fundamentally inaccurate interpretation of the Summers case. Um, you know, the holding there is just, and this was our argument, is just not nearly as broad or literal as defendants claimed. Um, and any, though there isn't a ton of, of uh, case law applying that decision, especially under the NEPA context, context thus far, um, subsequent, subsequent cases have not found it to have applied as defendants have suggested. And uh, we actually, you know, were very careful in filing our, our amended complaint to include detailed allegations regarding, you know, who these members are, um, their proximity to, uh, if not working directly on um, farms uh, with uh, animals that, that could contract the virus, their proximity to those places, and that the injury, you know, essentially would directly uh, impact them. And the court basically said, you know, we're correct in this case. The, it doesn't make any difference at all if you name uh, and, and you know John Smith or whoever the name is. That that's not what's important here. What's important is that you can you know make distinguishable that there are members who uh, have interests and would be injured, um, and that that you know can ensure that they have standing and redressability by the court. And while we're on that, can you just give us a little flavor of the variety of plaintiffs, just the factual differences? Because you do have a, a variety of different people who interact with birds or bird flus in different ways. The Humane Society, um, you know, has a number of members that they've identified um, that are either um, organic farmers of um, poultry or egg-laying hens, um, uh, or uh, they have backyard uh, egg laying hens um, that they raise, uh, and that um, that that the procedural deficiencies led to an unsafe protocol that increases their risks of either um, their birds contracting um, bird flu 
or them being in the zone of control um, that the government utilizes. Um, so when a bird flu infection is detected, um, they might do like a six mile radius and kill all the birds within that zone. Um, and our members are within that radius of factory farms. Um, and so um, they uh, uh, run the risk of having their birds be killed regardless of whether or not they've actually been infected. And then obviously if they have been infected, then, you know, the members are health could be directly impacted if they then themselves become infected um, and so forth. So that's kind of the, the, um, the theory of, of injury. Um, and then, you know, in addition to that, with regards to um, the disposal practices. Um, so if you are near um, a huge factory farm, you might then witness um, large piles of dead bird carcasses, which aren't very aesthetically pleasing. Um, and so your aesthetic interests might be violated in that instance. Um, if you recreate in those areas, um, your recreational interests could be impeded because of the environmental impacts that depopulation disposal um, has. Um, and so that's uh, sort of the, the members um, that HSUS have identified that we're uh, relying on. Now, maybe I have it wrong, but didn't also Farm Sanctuary Mercy for Animals, which, you know, probably don't have members who are chicken farmers, even the most organic or, um, or free range, didn't they also identify members more on the vegan side of the equation who also, I mean, they might have pet chickens or, uh, or, or come near chickens in, in some other way. So it's a, Am I right? And does that mean that there's a really wide variety and that vegans finally get to bring a lawsuit? <laughs> well, you, yeah, you're totally correct. And, and uh, anyone who is in uh, an area that's at high risk uh, of HPAI and, and own, potentially owns pet, pet chickens, um, they're also at risk here. And, uh, you know, they... Uh, we, we also spoke to a number of, um, you know, we identified members from, for example, Farm Sanctuary who work at and, uh, you know, spend every day uh, caring for animals that they've saved from, you know, factory farm. Um, and those animals are also uh, at risk, as are the people who care for them. Um, and so, you know, it's not necessarily... Uh, you know, just anyone who has a farm, but, uh, you know, for, for a poultry farm, but also, um, you know, anyone who is in, as Laura was saying, sort of the zone of interest. Um, and that doesn't, you know, you don't need to be a, a chicken farmer um, in the sense that you're producing poultry for, for human consumption uh, to, to, be, uh, to have your interests affected. Yeah, I think so often in the past, uh, sometimes with competitive injuries, you know, in a totally different realm of the law, it was always a matter of looking for the the chicken farmers, which, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the better chicken farmers. And it, it is nice to have the vegans in there as as plaintiffs in this case, I have to say, or at least represented. Um, all right, 
let's finally get to the issue that I find so interesting and because I don't know anything about it. And that was this holding that the plaintiffs had these members who had suffered a procedural injury. And the analysis here is different than uh, the normal uh, injury standing analysis under the uh, under Article 3. So can you just tell us the elements of a procedural injury? And And I think this is just in the Ninth Circuit, but maybe I'm wrong. So maybe we should define that first. Is this a Ninth Circuit principle or, or is it in conflict with other circuits? Um, so... Answer the circuit question first, since I just asked 12 questions, and, and then let's get to what the elements are. Dan, what, what is the situation? Do we have a conflict in the circuits here? Not necessarily a conflict, but in the Ninth Circuit, there is precedent that says that um, redressability is not as high a bar to meet in cases alleging procedural in, uh, injury. Um, where plaintiffs uh, allege procedural in, uh, injury um, you can establish redressability. Uh, it, it's easier somewhat to establish redressability because you need to show that the relief requested, i.e. that the agency follows the correct procedures as required by law, may influence the agency's ultimate decision of whether to take or refrain from taking a certain action. And so, and that comes directly from Ninth Circuit pre uh, precedent. And so here, you don't necessarily need to say that uh, these members have been injured by the plan itself, but we need to, you know, what we need to prove is that had uh, the government, had APHIS taken the appropriate action and uh, conducted a thorough environmental impact analysis, that could have influenced the agency's decision in terms of what actions to take. And because they totally did not do that and were deficient in their analysis, um, the procedural injury here has already occurred. And this is actually what the judge, uh, you know, said directly in uh, the opinion on the motion to dismiss was that, you know, here the injury is not that, uh, you know, some, uh, some, you know, future outbreak could occur. It's not some speculative outbreak in the future, which is what, um, you know, defendants were arguing is that our injury was too speculative because who knows when the next outbreak will come. Set aside the fact that we've all seen that in the last year, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the potential of pandemic to occur uh, is, is, you know, something that is undeniable at this point. Set aside that fact, the injury has already occurred. It's the fact that the, there was an inadequate procedural analysis and to make that redressable, um, you don't. All you need to show is that, uh, and which is a, somewhat of a, a lower requirement. Um, all you need to show is that a proper analysis could influence the action that ultimately is taken. Talking about the first prong, um, the what whether there is an injury, as you point out, the injury that they are alleging is just that that they hadn't, uh, they failed to to prepare an environmental impact statement. Um, and so it's already occurred. But but it, the court seemed to go into this analysis of, of when uh, when a procedural injury is a sufficient injury. And it had to do with, with plaintiff's um, interest being concrete as opposed to in vacuo. I just love it when the court introduces new Latin say, sayings for us all to learn. Um, so can you just talk a little bit about why these were concrete interests as opposed to uh, in vacuo interests? 
Yeah, so um, so even though a procedural um, you know injury occurred, the procedural deficiency doesn't itself uh, create the sort of injury in in fact um, sufficient right for standing. Um, now the once you find that there's a procedural injury that has occurred, um, these, you know, injury causation redressability prongs are relaxed. Um, and so the, the sort of traditional injury and in fact analysis becomes whether or not um, the procedural um, rights that have been deprived affects concrete interests that are sufficient to create Article 3 standing. Um, and so just as you would allege an injury, in fact, you would allege these contract interests, that concrete interests that are affected by the deprivation of your procedural rights. And so that includes what we were talking about before, about the um, you know heightened, um, heightened threat of exposure to HPI, HPAI, um, the uh, potential right harm to the birds that you raise or care for, um, and the aesthetic and recreational um, harms that you might um, uh, you know uh, experience um, if you live near um, you know a large CAFO that's been um, subjected to an outbreak, and so those are. Con, quote unquote, concrete interests that are tied to the procedural injury. And does that mean that you have to show that these, uh, the, the, the members actually do live near CAFOs? Is that an important piece of, of showing that you have a concrete um, interest? That's, That's one theory, right, of the case, right? So, um, but if you, for, for those specific, um, you know, uh, maybe, additional heightened risk of outbreak, seeing birds' carcasses piled up and right, so forth, right? right. But, um, you know, plaintiffs who are members who have raised, you know, chickens in their backyard, either because they've rescued them or, you know, they want to raise them for backyard, you know, egg production, whatever, right? They don't necessarily have to be near a CAFO. They're still at a heightened risk. And as you pointed out, uh, the defendant's main objection here seemed to be like basically just very wrongheaded in that they they had they didn't understand what injury you were alleging. Uh, they thought it was a prospective injury and therefore it's not imminent. Um, even though, as you point out, we do seem to have a pandemic, a, a, a kind of a pandemic, uh, at least among chickens, like every few weeks. And it's a little hard to address them after they've started. But uh but the, the injury that we're talking about really is just that they didn't follow the statute, which seems hugely important in NEPA cases, uh, since that's that's what they're all about, is doing the analysis. Um, all right. So now that we've gone through the special test for for injury, you, you mentioned redressability and, um, and that it's a, a really a relaxed standard when dealing with a procedural injury, because it has to be like you're too you're just too many steps away from from uh, what what would have to happen. Um, and uh, so what are the next steps? Uh, now that we've gotten through this, you've gotten through this somewhat laborious um, standing argument, uh, miraculously, what happens next? Are, are, you, are you heading into discovery? 
Well, so for an, this type of case, what we get is an, an administrative record. So it's similar to discovery, but really it's the defendants, the federal government that has to produce um, the record. So the, this is basically the, the documents um, that they used um, to make the decision. Um, so this will be, you know, whatever environmental assessments that they've done, whatever reports they relied on, all the comments that were submitted in response to, to that, that's going to compose the administrative record. So um, that's what we are uh, waiting on. And then once we receive that, we likely will um, move for summary judgment. And uh, I, I imagine you're anticipating it with, with, with great uh, imagine the imagination that there's going to be a hell of a lot of interesting stuff in there. Um, uh, yeah, it can go either way. We're either going to get two documents, um, or we're going to get a, a ten thousand pages to review. You know, you never know. <laughs> well, if it's two documents, that actually could be good for you because it would have been. Th- would really show that they didn't do much of a job here. Well, mm-hmm. this is such an exciting case. There's really, there's really a lot riding on it. I mean, the implications here. It's a, it, the the issues are a little complicated and they get very statutory. But the implications are just enormous for, uh, for uh, you know, finally finding a case where you can really hone in on the fundamental issues in factory farming, and that is, of course, the stocking density and how closely we keep these animals. So. Uh, I, I, thank you so much for for sharing it with us today. And I, you know, I I can imagine us um, revisiting this case in the future uh, after you've won it and you've destroyed factory farming in the United States. So, uh, <laughs> looking forward to that moment. Great, best of luck with it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Is, did I did I fail to ask you anything that that you would want to fill in? Um, I mean, the only thing that we sort of skipped over was with regard to causation and redressability and the government's argument that it's not responsible, that it's, um, you know, uh, reliant on third parties um, to execute their plan. Oh, yeah, that's that was a real. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that is such a um, sordid argument. Can you just go into it a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as we had discussed before, right, the federal government, you know, evaluated its, you know, the alternative sort of actions that it could take. And one was, you know, let's do no action. Um, The other is let's assist local, um, state, and individual producers um, when they have to engage in, you know, some control mechanism for HPAI outbreaks. Um, And so, you know, they went with the idea that they're going to assist the state and the localities and the producers in in these actions. Um, And so then the federal government was claiming well, there's so many different actors that part that you know partake in the deployment of the plan, um, and are really reliant on state and inv- individual producers, right? And it, oh, by the way, individual producers could go ahead and reduce their stocking and all this kind of stuff. So, like, we have no control over what they're doing, um, and so the, it's not the federal government that's creating the um, what what they determined was was the injury, which was right the two speculative bird future outbreaks, whatever. Um, it's the state and individual producers that are creating that risk, 
and those harms. And that leads to then redressability, right? Because if the court, if we're not bringing in those actors, right, the state and local um, and, you know, producers, then the court really doesn't have any control um, or redress over those actors. Um, And the court, you know, of course, didn't go along with that argument because, you know, you really don't need to show full, complete, um, uh, uh, you know, cure of the injuries that you allege, which were, you know, misconstrued by the government, first off, right, that the injury really is the procedural injury and that that will fully be um, redressed um, if we are successful and the government needs to reassess and reevaluate the environmental impacts and do the correct procedure, right? Um, And that uh, those concrete interests that we identified before, um, you know, aren't in any way diminished because, um, you know, state actors are out there as well doing things that could impact, right? Um, As long as the federal government has some tie to those concrete interests, and they, they do, right, because they help facilitate these plans and direct what state actors do and what producers do and then pay them if they follow those directions, um, that, that argument that third parties, um, were really the cause, um, of the injury, um, you know, didn't hold any weight. It's largely a specious argument. I mean, the government really, um, I think we're, we're trying to get out of this by significantly downplaying, uh, their involvement in, uh, in HPAI response. And, um, you know, the facts are that the, the federal government spends, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, not only in, in responding to this, but in trying to set up, uh, a procedure and protocol to put in place in order to respond. Um, and not only, you know, monetary resources, but sends, uh, personnel, to help with depopulation as efforts, um, really every step of the uh, control, containment, and uh, disposal process, they are, you know, fairly intimately involved in. So by saying, "Oh, uh, we, you know, we can get out of this because there are too many links in the chain and the, the connection between, um, you know, the the proposed harm and and uh, and and our uh, having are causing it are, are is too attenuated. It's just a really deceptive argument, and um, it just doesn't comport with the facts. Yeah, and uh, and and also uh, both both the facts in that they are like intensely involved here, and that's sort of inevitable, uh, and the fact that um, there is, as you pointed out before, Dan. A, a, a more relaxed standard with a procedural injury regarding this. I mean, both both factors uh, uh, weigh in favor of of the court's decision here. So, uh, do you expect um, do you expect an appeal? I don't believe so. Um, we are you know already kind of on a scheduled order um, for when we're going to expect the administrative record to be complete and and then when you know we're going to move for summary judgment. So I. Do not expect it. The government is actually, uh, they have to file their answer in a, within a few days, I believe. So, Okay. All right. Well, 
it's a, it's a very exciting case, and I'm really thankful to both of you for explaining to us in such detail today. And I'll be really looking forward to see what happens next. So get on it. Thanks so much for being here. Our pleasure. Thanks. So thanks so much for joining us on the Animal Law Podcast. We'll be back next month with a new show. And thanks so much to Daniel Weiner and Laura Fox for taking the time to tell us about this case, which really has extraordinary potential to be a game changer. Thank you to Jen Riley and Jared Gleckel for their help in producing the podcast. If you're not already a subscriber, please consider doing so wherever you listen to podcasts. And please also consider leaving us a good review there or on Apple Podcasts. And if you are able, please make a tax-deductible donation at ourhenhouse.org. And thank you so much for tuning in. Please continue to keep yourself safe.